Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, Kellen, two weeks ago, you and I did an episode on Antarctica and Greenland. You know, so we talked about the effects that these two massive chunks of ice are going to have on sea level rise in the future, right? Well, this week, we're going to shift focus a little bit. And instead of talking about the source of sea level rise, we're going to talk about some of the consequences of it. So more specifically, this is meant to be a conversation in which we hone in on some very specific places on Earth that are vulnerable to sea level rise. So we'll talk about what the current situation is, what the outlook is, and how those nations specifically are focusing on preparing for mitigating and adapting to sea level rise. The two places that we've decided to talk about today are especially vulnerable to it. You know, they're already suffering from sea level rise and their outlooks are bleak. Bleak enough, in fact, that their entire existence has basically come under question. So we'll talk about the efforts they're going through, the, the things they're willing to do to protect themselves. And I think that by looking at these and by analyzing the specific scenarios, it will give us a little bit of an idea of the scale of the problem that we're experiencing globally. It'll give us an idea of what the world's going to have to do in order to try and adapt as we suffer through catabolic collapse, while at the same time basically just trying to keep our heads above water. Yeah, I like the way that you introduced that. And I, I think just to add, you know, sea level rise is one factor. Even for these countries that we're going to be talking about, I think it's good to keep in mind that in addition to rising sea levels, which like you said, happens to be a major threat for these nations, climate change in general and what that does, you know, for example, the increase in tropical storms and cyclones, like 
when you add that to the economic issues and the supply chain issues, all the other issues that the entire world is facing, I think it's just good to keep that in context. And and it'll help us realize just how desperate the situation really is for these nations in particular. Great. So just like with the Antarctica Greenland episode that we recently did, in this episode, we also each took responsibility for doing research on a different nation. So Kellen's going to be talking about Fiji, and I think we'll start there. Yeah, and just to start, when I think about Fiji, I actually always remember a particular movie where you may remember that we used to watch this movie growing up, and it's The Truman Show. Love it. Love that show. And you'll remember that the whole premise of the show, of the movie, is that it's this elaborate TV set. And the main character, Truman, he doesn't know that, but it's like this form of reality TV where he's just living his life. He's born there, and there's all these hidden cameras watching him. He's kind of figuring it out as the story progresses, but he has this explorer mindset, this dreamer mindset. He wants to travel around the world, and he always talks about the one place that he wants to go is Fiji. And according to him, it's because, you know, at one point he says, it's the furthest you can go around the world before you start coming back. And so anyways, to give you an idea of where Fiji is at, if you go about 1,800 miles east of Australia, that's where you'll find it. And one thing that I didn't know is that the country of Fiji has more than 300 islands. And spread across those islands, there's a population of just under 1 million people. So Fiji, like we mentioned, is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change and sea level rise in particular. And you would expect that from just about any island nation, but they're facing some extreme challenges there. And when it comes to climate change in general, you know, for Fiji, one of those challenges is agriculture. Sugar in particular is something that is a big part of what they export. Sugar exports represent $59.7 million. So as sea levels rise, they're seeing that the soil and the groundwater gets more affected by the salt, by the seawater. There's also an increase in the frequency and the intensity of extreme weather events. So you can imagine, you know, when tropical storms come through and the sea level is already higher than it was before, there is just devastating amounts of flooding. Not to mention all the impacts of the flooding that comes from the rain itself and the way that can kind of wash away hillsides and destroy infrastructure. Climate change has also had a huge impact on the marine environment. So there are shrinking habitats for fish, and that's because phytoplankton and zooplankton is dying off. It's apparently changing the migration patterns for tuna. And so there's just significantly less fish stock in the waters of Fiji. And perhaps one of the biggest impacts is on tourism. So tourism represents 40% of Fiji's GDP. And at least as of a couple years ago, in 2020, the tourism industry in Fiji employed 150,000 people. Wow. So obviously, as there's more extreme weather events, like I mentioned, that impacts tourism. And as there's more damage from those extreme weather events, that impacts tourism. And also, the government is having to divert funds from investing in tourism and instead put that toward climate mitigation. So that has an impact. But one of the biggest appeals to tourists when they think about going to Fiji is they want to go scuba dive and snorkel and explore the reefs. But because there's been extreme reef degradation and coral bleaching, 
it's having this major impact on Fiji's tourism. So you take all of these negative impacts that are happening because of climate change, and you also add in the fact that currently a quarter of the country's bird species and two-thirds of the amphibian species are threatened or endangered because of rising sea temperatures and because of overfishing. Okay, so with all of that as context, now consider the fact that 65% of the population of Fiji lives within five kilometers of the shore. So that's what, something like three miles. And in many parts of Fiji, the places where people currently live is becoming uninhabitable. So I actually took some time and looked around on YouTube and I, and I watched some videos just to see what it's really like. And again, there's so many different islands, but on some of these islands, you know, there's, there's water right up to the buildings and you might see like a cemetery that's halfway underwater and the tombstones are just sticking out of the water. Or, you know, there's water surrounding a school, like it just kind of looks marshy. And so the situation is getting pretty desperate and people are often willing to find ways to live in these kind of situations. But the problem is these tropical storms that keep coming through, you know, they're making people realize we can't live here anymore. We have to find a way to go somewhere else. In other places, they have these seawalls, but when it's high tide, those seawalls get breached and everything gets flooded. You know, one quote that I found from a villager there in Fiji says, we are fearing for our lives because of cyclones, comma, inundation of waves in the village. So Fiji gets talked about a lot when it comes to governments trying to figure out how to react to climate change, because as a country, they've done something very unique. The government has put together a 130-page standard operating procedure for planned relocations. And in doing this, the government of Fiji has identified 830 communities that are vulnerable to climate-related impacts. And of those, they've selected 42 villages as candidates for potential relocation in the next 5 to 10 years. Six of those have already been moved. So basically, they've been extremely deliberate in thinking about how do we get these people out of these dangerous areas into safer areas. And initially, when I heard about this plan, I thought, oh, great, can't be that complicated. Like, if there's some people living down by the coast, let's just move them inland a little bit more. And yet, when doing the research and reading up on what this actually entails, to me, it's just mind-boggling. All that goes into moving people and all the obstacles they face yeah, one thing that comes to mind specifically just from the research that I did is that there are a lot of cultural issues with just picking up and moving people, right? You know, even if infrastructure and practicality was all in place and it made sense to do it from that point of view, you know, to, to tell somebody like, oh, you and your family who have lived here for however many generations, this is your community, this is your neighborhood, you know these streets like the back of your hand, well, we have to move you. Uh, everything's going to be different and new. You know, that can, if you do that to an entire town, an entire nation, I can imagine that would cause real issues by itself. It's basically gentrification of a neighborhood, but by water. People feel these really cultural and like religious ties to their land. So it's not as simple as just up and moving them. Yeah, in fact, that's one thing I saw a lot. It's it's so hard for people to let go, especially when it's tied into religious beliefs. When they're saying something like, God gave my forefathers this land centuries ago, and they passed it on, and they passed it on, and they passed it on, all the way down to me. 
So I have this responsibility, right? This is, this is in my heritage. I need to take care of this land. So that's deeply traumatic and difficult and painful. And at times, you know, despite how awful the situation is, people are saying, I'm going to stay. And they're trying to find ways to make it work. But most people recognize there's just no way they can continue to live there. And in fact, on that note, I'm going to read a quote from a Guardian article. Fiji's ambassador to the UN said this, It is not just pulling out 30 or 40 houses in a village and moving them further upfield. I wish it were that simple. And then the article says, He rattled off a list of the things that need to be moved along with homes, schools, health centers, roads, electricity, water, infrastructure, the village, church. And then the quote continues, and in case even that you were able to achieve, you have to relocate people's burial grounds. And for me, those are just a lot of things that I hadn't thought about. Like it takes so much to actually relocate a village. And on that point about burial grounds, it was mentioned that the hardest people to move are the dead. You know, one statement from that article talked about how when villagers are relocating, they face this choice of either leaving behind the bones of their ancestors or exhuming them and taking them to the new site. But if you think about it, either of those choices is deeply traumatic. So like I mentioned before, of all of those communities, those villages that they have decided they need to move, they've already moved six of them. And they keep running into issues, and so then they go back to their standard operating procedure, their plan, and they make edits and add to it. And they say, okay, let's make sure we remember this thing next time. So one example, the first village they moved, they planned it all out with the men of the village. And part of the plan was that they would do this in a couple of phases. You know, they were going to build 30 or so homes as phase one, and then later they would build a kitchen for each of those homes. But in the end, the project wasn't finished. And because it was the men of the village that were helping make the plans, they didn't really think about the importance of having a kitchen there right from the get-go. And so those villagers have had to you know, go back to the old village and pull some things out and try and move those and create these makeshift kitchens. And it hasn't been an ideal situation. In another case, you know, a village that had previously been pretty isolated now has this road that goes into nearby towns. And in some ways, that's great. They have access to so many more things. But one thing that it has introduced is alcohol. So they've mentioned that, you know, this isolated village didn't have alcohol before. But now that it's connected with this road, they're starting to see all these harmful, deviant behaviors. And that's just something that was never an issue before. Oftentimes, they run into issues as they try to negotiate between different clans. And there's a whole process for trying to find land. And if it's owned by a certain clan of indigenous people, then like, can you take that from them? Or can you ask that of them? What can you trade to make that happen? So in one case, they had built this really nice village with kitchens and toilets and bathrooms. And they had even made a little fish pond and a poultry shed, and beehives. And it was all in this effort to say, hey, if we're going to move these people, we're going to do it right. We're going to give them a a good place to move to. But that made the surrounding villages really upset. You know, they were like, hey, the government came in and built all this nice stuff for them. We want that too. So now the government is having to go back to their standard operating procedure and say, okay, next time as part of the plan, we need to remember to upgrade 
the surrounding villages if we're going to move a new village in. So to this point, it sounds very expensive. You know, even just creating one new village, but then having to upgrade the other surrounding villages. Where are the funds coming from for this? Yeah, and with all of these hurdles that I've mentioned, that one right there, that's the biggest one. The people themselves certainly don't have the money, and the government doesn't have enough money either. So essentially, the Fijian government has gotten really good at asking for money from other nations and from international donors. And are they doing that in a way to say basically, like, look, Western countries, developed nations are emitting the most. They are most responsible for climate change. So, like, help us out. Do your part to care for those of us who aren't emitting but are suffering the worst. Like, is that kind of their plea and their claim or is it something different? Yeah, I think all of that is involved. And in fact, they've used lots of tactics to try to negotiate, particularly with the Green Climate Fund, um, which if you haven't heard of it, it's a multi-billion dollar fund. The whole purpose is kind of meant to take money from developed nations and funnel it to these underdeveloped nations and help them with these kind of issues. But yeah, more than 40% of Fiji's climate spending comes from international funders. The rest of it is from the government of Fiji. But to that point, that's, that's actually a critique that some people have. They claim that Fiji is over-dramatizing how bad the situation actually is because they see it as a major opportunity to get money. So it's hard to know how much they're leveraging the situation, how much they actually are dramatizing what's happening there. It doesn't seem like they are. You know, Fiji, they claim that they're receiving only a sliver of a sliver of what they need. You know, they don't have nearly enough funding to help all of these villages that desperately need it. But there are those who say like, hey, Fiji's just getting really good at, you know, leeching money from developed nations and basically using all this climate stuff as an excuse because they know that's going to spark people's sympathies. And, you know, this is something that we're seeing more and more of recently, you know, on a very large scale, we see it with the way that many like conservatives of the GOP will react to Democrats putting climate change spending into bills and into the budget. It's basically saying, oh, they're using fear to increase budget and, and this and that. On a smaller scale, just like in this example that you've given about Fiji, people are also saying that about like right now there's an Ebola outbreak. I don't remember which country. I think it's Uganda or one of those in Africa. And they're saying like they're making this outbreak sound much worse than it actually is in order to get more international funding. They just want to funnel in the money and use it for other things. And I think the the one thing that can be said, even though we don't fully know where the truth lies, is that both those things can be true. There can both be a serious Ebola outbreak and the government can also be milking it for funds, right? The same thing could be said about Fiji. Not that I'm saying that that's what is happening, but they don't have to be mutually ex exclusive, right? Climate change is an extremely serious threat, but the Democrats could also be using it for political and monetary gain. The reason I bring that up is because I see a lot of people use it as like a denial mechanism to be like, oh, it's one or the other. It's this dichotomy. Either climate change is real and we need to pay lots of money f to fix it, basically, or it's not real and we don't need to pay anything. People do take advantage of crises for gain. It does happen. It doesn't mean that the crisis isn't happening. Yeah, I think people have a really difficult time 
maintaining a nuanced view like that. Anytime anybody's asking for money, like I think about if it's just a homeless person at an intersection standing there next to the cars that pull up asking for money, people always want to take an oversimplified like blanket approach to it and say, oh, they're really not in that much need. They just do this to take money from people or homeless people always just want that money for drugs or whatever, like this vast oversimplification. When the reality is there are probably as many motives and as many different levels of desperation as there are people asking for money. Yeah. So it seems like the lack of money, the lack of funding is the biggest obstacle that Fiji faces in being able to move these people. But even if they had all the money, just finding a place to move them, finding the land is seemingly an insurmountable obstacle as well. And it's interesting, they've developed all these like flow charts, you know, these decision-making trees. So I'll share from one article, it says, if the land is indigenous owned, then the request for relocation goes to the district advisory council. If the land is not indigenous owned, then the request goes to the ministry of housing and community development. If the community is judged to be at risk of earthquakes or landslide, the risk assessment of the land should be carried out by the Mineral Resources Department. If the risk is cyclones, then it is done by the Fiji Meteorological Office. And I share that as just one example to highlight how complicated it is. There are all these different agencies involved and they're trying to assess all the risks and all of the factors at play and plan for these different situations. And again, the land that they're going to move them to is probably owned by another clan. And so how do you navigate that and negotiate in a way that it works out well for everybody? So going back to that number I cited earlier, Fiji has identified 830 communities that they claim are vulnerable to these climate-related impacts. And those 42 that they've singled in on, you know, they're having a hard time coming up with the funds and the land that they can actually relocate those people to. So it sounds like just an absolutely monumental task. And the funds just for paying for it all are hard to come by despite all the other practicality issues there. And speaking of the funding part of it, that's all in recent history where, you know, it's been a relatively prosperous time compared to what we're heading into. So to consider the future of these nations, uh, you know, Fiji, how they're going to deal with climate change when perhaps because of catabolic collapse, because of economic issues, there's a decrease in the amount of funding available. That could uh, become a great burden. You think of a place like Fiji where if funding isn't coming internationally and the government is doing all it can to provide that funding, like they're going to inevitably be taking that from other infrastructure updates, from other social needs, which can have a great impact on the stability of the nation. You talked about how so much of their money comes from tourism. Well, as those funds continue to dry up because the nation can't support the tourism anymore, like it's just this feedback loop of continuing issues. Well, you had said that Fiji is about 1,800 miles east of the coast of Australia. We're going to move to another nearby set of islands called Tuvalu, which is about 2,000 miles northeast of Australia as well. So it's another Pacific nation. Tuvalu, though, is much smaller than Fiji. As a matter of fact, it's about 1% the population of Fiji with around 12,000 people. Tuvalu is made up of nine different islands spread across an area of ocean that's 300,000 square miles. 
So it's this massive area with nine tiny islands within it. And of that 300,000 square miles of ocean, there's only 10 square miles of land between those islands. And 60% of all those who live in Tuvalu live on sort of the main island, the capital, which is called Funafuti, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Tuvalu is the third smallest nation by population in the world. So some of the challenges that Tuvalu faces because it's so small, there's no groundwater. There are no bodies of water, no rivers. Basically, all of their water comes from catchment, uh, from rain. They store that water and then they disperse that out to citizens. You know, for most of us, it's hard to imagine living, sort of envision that super small, remote set of islands with, you know, 12,000 people. But you can't imagine the culture that exists there. For those that are from there, their ancestors are from there. It's an extremely sacred place. It's part of their identity. And so you can see why climate change poses a major threat. The idea of relocation to those in Tuvalu is not an option. The problem is that Tuvalu has an average elevation of less than two meters above sea level. So we're talking, you know, six-ish feet. That being the average, the, the highest point in all of the islands is only 15 feet. That's basically the, the roof of a single-story home. It's the highest point on all the islands above water. And so research shows that current sea level rise in Tuvalu is nearly twice the global average at around 5.6 millimeters per year. And current projections show that by 2050, half of the land in the capital will be inundated by daily high tides. So just a short 28 years from now, half underwater every day. And by 2100, 95% will be. So we're talking about every day at high tide, inundation of pretty much every home. Like that's completely unlivable. Now you mentioned in regards to Fiji that there are other things beyond just sea level rise, right? So we've got climate change issues that are taking effect in addition to just rising seas. And that's going to happen in Tuvalu as well. Most of them do have to do with the fact that the sea is quickly encroaching, and that's pretty much because the island is so small. The The point at which it is widest is still less than a kilometer. But it is important to note that, you know, as salt water encroaches inland, it's not just about, oh, it's flooding buildings, but it also ruins crops. It encroaches into the soil, into farmland. And so for a nation that's so far away from others, they rely on themselves. They're self-sufficient, you know, on their ability to grow food. So they, like Fiji, have come up with a plan. It's uh, something called the TCA. So this is uh, the Tuvalu Coastal Adaptation Project. That's been in place since 2017. But just recently, and by just recently, I mean within the last couple of weeks, uh, at COP27, they released something called LTAP, which is their long-term adaptation plan. There is an interesting little video that explains what that plan entails, what they intend to do. We'll put a link to that here if you want a quick idea of it. But because it's so new, there is still a ton of information that was not released. You know, we don't know yet. So I'll try and explain a little bit what this plan is as they have explained it. There are two phases. Uh, phase one is the important sort of immediate phase and they have a phase two, which they've left for the future if it's ever needed. So to explain phase one, it's important to kind of understand how 
the islands are formed. It's basically a, a large ring of islands with the inner part of the islands having a lagoon for the most part. Um, and they're built up by like coral. And the capital island is basically shaped like a boomerang. So the central part is uh, a little thicker and then it starts to curve and get narrower as it goes out to the points. And like I mentioned, the thickest part of this in the middle there is about a kilometer. And so their plan, what they want to do, and I'm sorry I'm switching back and forth between kilometers and miles here. It's just based on where I got my information. But the plan is to put 1.5 square miles, which is about 900 acres of land on the inside of the lagoon, basically that inner part of the boomerang, right? They're going to build that up. They're going to grade it correctly so that there's proper drainage. And then they're going to move the entire population of the island to this newly formed like beach that they've added on. And this would be a, re a relocation of about 6,000 people. We had said there was a total population of between 11 and 12,000 people. 60% of them live here in the capital. And, you know, you had just gone over so many issues that come up with relocation. They're expected to, to deal with these same types of issues here to get all those people moved. And when you consider that they're down to less than 30 years before half of the entire population is going to be inundated daily, it's something that they feel that they have to do. They say that they believe this plan could last them through 2100. But again, I mentioned that there was a phase two, which they have as a contingency in case they need to. And basically what that does is it takes that previously inhabited portion, basically what's, what's inhabited today, that they plan on relocating, chopping all of that down, removing all of the vegetation, taking material from the lagoon, building that up by several feet, and then replanting the vegetation. And then they can use that as a forested area, which does not get undated any longer, or they could use it as space for building more homes as the population of the island continues to grow. They're going to have to completely replace things like their airport. They say that the current one is going to be completely inundated as is. So they'll move it. They'll use the new airport. It'll be engineered in such a way that they can do rain catchment off of the tarmac. And then that will be how they take their rainwater and deliver it to the people. So it's a highly engineered plan. And with those unknowns that I mentioned previously, cost is a major one. So, so far, they have not mentioned anywhere that I could find what the projected cost of this whole project would be or a projected start date. But when you consider that Tuvalu's entire GDP is $30 million, you know, a project like this could easily surpass the entirety of their GDP. And I'm not an engineer. I don't know, you know, what an estimate of the cost would be without them saying numbers. You know, you could tell me that this is a project that would cost $10 million, or you could tell me that it would cost a billion dollars, and I don't know that I'd be shocked either way. But it's a lot, and it's, again, another example that shows the drastic actions that nations have to take, which are so often the nations who contribute the least to climate change, right? But they're being the most impacted by it. They have likewise... Just like you mentioned with Fiji, they're trying to find funding from international donors, countries and places that are better off, and ones that are more responsible for climate change. And so we'll see if those funds are provided and, and what they do to, to make this happen. And I think it's interesting, Tuvalu, at the different COP meetings that they've done, they've been more frequently releasing videos and ideas about their situation I think it was last year they did a video where Tuvalu's leader is standing out in the water 
up to his knees and there's a pulpit out there with him with the flags behind him and he's saying you know this was once inhabitable land and now it's underwater you know it's it's just kind of an interesting way to do the speech and show that like we are in a dire situation here another thing that they they announced this year at cop 27 is that they're going to be putting all of tuvalu into the metaverse basically they said that in in an attempt to preserve the knowledge the culture the history of the island they want to make sure that none of it's lost if the island should go under sea. So they're putting it into the metaverse. And, you know, it sounds to me a bit like a uh, a stunt, like a political statement that they're doing there. But the idea, just the fact that it's even being thrown around as an idea, that the island is in such danger that the only way it can survive is in the cloud, like that does set a really stark mood and reality to their situation. We've talked here about two relatively small parts of the world who are willing to go to extreme lengths to save their people and save their nations. And it makes me think, okay, so what will the rest of the world do? You know, we're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of people that live on coastlines that are going to be affected by sea level rise. And aside from a few areas like Miami and the Netherlands, a few others that we may have heard about with with plans, most coastal regions don't have set plans yet for how they're going to react or adapt to climate change. So it begs the question, are people going to just abandon coastal areas altogether? Or if they do, where are they going to go? What's it going to cost? What harm are those abandoned infrastructures going to do to the ocean? What kind of pollution is that going to introduce? What impacts is it going to have on the environment? What impacts will it have on other cultures nearby when people start to migrate? And so I think talking about it on this small scale and getting really specific with it leads to these bigger questions on the large scale as you scale up when it comes to these multiple failures of infrastructure that houses all those millions or billions of people with all of the economic and social infrastructure that's built there as well. Well, as you were sharing that, Corey, I went ahead and looked up some images of Tuvalu and I saw that photo of the event that you were describing where the leader of Tuvalu was standing, you know, knee high in water, giving a speech from a pulpit that's standing in the water. Um, but then I continued to look through other images. And I've just got to say, it looks like such an incredible place. You know, I saw photos of these people in cultural celebrations, wearing, you know, their, their typical Islander clothing. I saw some images of, of different events that were taking place there. And the whole time I'm thinking like, this place looks amazing. If I ever get the chance, I'd love to go there. You know, I'd, I'd love to go see and meet the people, see what they're like. They just seem incredible and hardworking. And then while I was thinking that, I had this moment where I realized like there may never even be an opportunity at any point for me to go there or for anyone to go there. Like it really just hit me and perhaps they'll find the funding and they'll be able to do these big expensive projects and preserve some of the land. But even then it's never going to be what it was. And it's, it's hard not to feel that loss, like that sense of grief, even for somebody like me who's sitting on the other side of the planet in, in a very comfortable situation, you know, a, a very privileged situation. And I'm so distant and, Yet, just those feelings of like, what a shame it would be to lose all of that. And it's that same feeling I get when we talk about, you know, like 60% of the wildlife populations have gone extinct or whatever the exact number is. 
I feel like there's so many beautiful things about the planet and the people and the cultures and the species. And it's pretty depressing to think of the way that we're having to face all of that loss. Yeah, that's really well said. I feel that same sense of loss and grief. And I can't imagine those same feelings for those who live there, for whom that is their identity. Kellen and I want to say thank you to all of you who are sticking around with us, continuing to listen. Thanks so much for your support and your time for lending us your ears. We hope that you're taking the opportunity to share the podcast with those in your life who you think will benefit from it. If you haven't joined us on Patreon yet, please feel free to look into it. It is a huge support to Kellen and I, especially as we continue to think of ways to expand and improve the podcast. As always, please leave us a review or a rating. We'll end this one here, but we look forward to speaking again in a week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.